With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dr. Pauline Boss has a new book out entitled The Myth of Closure. And she's here this week to discuss that plus ambiguous loss. What does all this stuff mean and how does it affect our everyday lives? Also, Brian Eskow is here to discuss the controversy of Whoopi Goldberg being suspended from The View for stating the Holocaust was not about race. Oh boy, we're definitely going to go there. My name is E. Duke Bennett, and this is Tell Us the Truth. My name is Pauline Boss. I'm Professor Emeritus from the University of Minnesota, the Department of Education and Human Development. And I'm here to tell you the truth. I've always studied for 40 years family stress, and out of that have come at least eight books that I've written, um, the most recent of which is The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. I was a family therapist for 40 years, but I'm now 87 years old, and so I no longer do active therapy, but I do write, consult, and educate. The biggest misconception about the concept of closure is that when we lose someone or something like a pet, uh, we will have closure if we do the grieving correctly. All of what I just said is totally false. There is no one right way to grieve, and closure is not possible, nor is it desirable. What we really want is to find meaning in our losses, not closure. You know, Dr. Pauline, I know here in the United States, the concept of closure is something that is widely accepted as, yeah, that's the way it is. It's something that we should pursue, uh, which I always found interesting. Is this the case around the world? I mean, from a cultural standpoint, is, is closure a concept that is primarily a Western thing, or is this something that you know, most cultures around the world, that is what they believe in? It is not a worldwide belief, by the way, that closure is necessary after a loss. Many people in the Eastern countries uh, do ancestor uh, worship. They, they have altars in their home to remember their ancestors daily. The Thai restaurant down the street from where I live put a meal in the window uh, each day for their ancestors. But it seems to be the um, American idea that uh, we, we need to perhaps grieve for two or three days and then get over it, I have closure. I think that we are a ma very mastery-oriented culture that believes in productivity and suffering and grieving are not productive and so we don't like them. We like winning, not losing. And uh, that comes up in our culture that says, okay, you can take three days of work off to grieve and then come back and be productive again. What the research shows now 
is that uh, closure is a, is a cruel, in fact, idea to put in the minds of the people who have lost something. It It is a false um, um, goal. It is an illusion that they can't ever meet, and so their grief is made worse by it. Uh, instead, we've, we can find meaning in loss to live with it, live with the pain of it. Uh, it, it lessens uh, like waves coming and going. And over the years, maybe even 20 years after you've lost someone, you may still have a tear when you see something that reminds you of them. But that's normal grief. Uh, you don't get over it. We learn to live with it. Closure is a myth. Dr. Pauline, you are a grief counselor and a psychologist. So I wonder, through the years, how have your peers reacted to this notion that closure is a myth? Well, it's rather amusing. My research colleagues said uh, we're not fond of it because they, could, they couldn't find a way to measure or quantify ambiguity. And, and, of course, I was coming from a more qualitative research uh, angle, and I knew you couldn't put a measurement on ambiguity. So it was a little, uh, it was an upward climb. However, when I was a visiting professor at Harvard, I was very much encouraged to keep going. And that's when I began the book, the 99 book, uh, Ambiguous Loss. And that has sold over 40,000 copies. So around the world, People find the concept of ambiguous loss useful regardless of culture, uh, regardless of type of loss. That gives me great pleasure. There's still a few people who say um, it doesn't exist if you can't measure it. Um, well, it does exist, even if you can't measure it. That is wonderful that you've sold so many books, especially making reference to your, your first one about ambiguous loss and introducing it into the world discussion, so to speak. From your perspective, what has been the impact of the notion of ambiguous loss now that it's out there? You know, now that you've sold the books, uh, people are discussing it openly. What's been the impact? The, the term ambiguous loss has given millions of people a term for something they were feeling after they lost someone or something. It has given a name to it, ambiguous loss, a physical ambiguous loss would be if somebody has disappeared, kidnapped, vanished at sea, whatever, uh, maybe no body to bury like after 9-11. Um, and a psychological ambiguous loss would be if the person is here in front of you, but their mind is gone, like with dementia, the over 80 kinds of conditions that cause dementia. So it gives a name to something people feel, uh, and it has no official verification like a death, but they still feel it, and they're grieving, but they don't know what they're grieving for. Um, and so giving the name ambiguous loss allows people to cope. You can't cope with something until you have a name for it. And right now, during the pandemic, there are many ambiguous losses um, that we can't see, you know, loss of trust in the world, loss of trust in some leaders, a loss of a physical one would be loss of being able to hug our loved ones or being near them or being with them when they die. Um, 
there, there are many ambiguous losses now, too many for me to list here, but they're in the book, many of them, and each person will have their own unique ones. Uh, but we, we have been inundated with loss due to this enemy we can't see, the virus. And people are feeling um, sad and confused and weary and angry. We certainly have seen the anger come out. You know, Dr. Pauline, I mean, I personally have to thank you for coining the phrase ambiguous loss and all the work that you've done to define it and help people understand it. Because I got to tell you, I mean, I was raised to be a critical thinker and to challenge things that, you know, you're told, okay, that's just the way it is. And like, well, why is it that way? Does this make sense? You know what I mean? When When you process it, does it actually make sense or is this just a bunch of baloney, so to speak. And I can tell you closure has always been one of those concepts that on a personal level, it's never actually, uh, I've never seen it executed where it happens, at least not the way that it does in the movies or on a television show. You know what I mean? As you say, it, it truly is a myth. Yes, this this set thing of closure can never happen. So it's an irritant that will, and a pain a suppressed pain, I should say, a suppressed feeling that will continue throughout your lifetime and pop out just when you don't want it to. So instead of that, we say to ourselves, I can live with this pain, but I need to find some purpose in it, some meaning in it. And you've seen that. Many people, for example, who lose a child to some kind of illness uh, will work afterwards to prevent that illness from happening to other children. In my case, my family lost my little brother the summer before the sock vaccine came out to polio. He played football one Friday night and he died the next one. He was 13, I was 19. I've never forgotten that. And I know that our family almost immediately joined the March of Dimes endeavor and went from house to house where we lived, collecting dimes for the March of Dimes, which, by the way, is still going and and doing very good work. Uh, But most people who have a death, even a death they can't understand, that has no meaning, like perhaps a suicide, the meaning is that it's meaningless and always will be. They, too, may join an effort, have some purpose in life, perhaps to join an organization to prevent that from happening again, or they will live a good life in honor of that person, or they will take care of the other children in honor of that person. Each person does it their own way. But the main thing is that they find some purpose in what they have lost. Uh, We need to learn something from it. We need to help others because of it. It, it helps us to live with grief if we do that. I'm talking to Dr. Pauline Boss, the author of The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. You know, Dr. Pauline, there is a a notion that you cover in the book, both and thinking, which is really interesting because I've noticed in the past you know, four or five years in particular, this seems to be catching on, this this both and concept. Please define what this is and, and how does it fit into the whole myth of closure? 
Well, it's not dialectical thinking, which uh, some academics might think when they first hear it, because there's never any uh, resolution. So both-and thinking is where you hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time. Uh, this, this pandemic is both terrible and I can cope with it by doing some things differently. Uh, if you use that kind of a sentence with anything that is blocking your life, that is a loss that you didn't want, that is something in your daily life that you don't like, in other words, when you can't have your own way, um, both and thinking allows you to show both sides of it, the negative and the positive, which is probably as close to the truth as you can get with ambiguous loss. Let's say somebody you lo love has Alzheimer's disease and you're living with them. You can say they are both here and gone. She is both in front of me and gone someplace else. If it is a physical ambiguous loss, like somebody you can't see right now because of the pandemic, you might say, he is both physically gone and I can communicate with him at least by Zoom. So sometimes it's hard to find both sides to that. On a, on a societal level today, I would say we are both in chaos and conflict and we will get through this. I truly believe this. I think we're in a time of chaos and paradigm shift like we were in the 60s. It'll take at least a decade. We're already a couple of years into it. The pandemic made it worse. Uh, but we'll come out at the other end after still some more chaos and conflict, I think better than we were when we started all this. Both end thinking is a way to cope with a situation you can't control. Dr. Pauline, from reading the book and now having this, this deeper discussion with you, control, it seems like the concept of, of closure and ambiguous loss really come down to control, the desire to control as much of every aspect of our lives as possible. And that's why, you know, people chase this, this red herring, so to speak here. Exactly. We, we've become quite arrogant about that. But let me say first that Americans are really good at solving problems. I, I'm in awe about what we're doing in outer space. My goodness. Uh, what kind of control and mastery that must have taken um, to put that uh, camera up there um, and the, the little helicopters and a man on the moon before that. Um, we are very, and we also uh, did found vaccines. Our scientific community found vaccines very quickly. So let me preface what I'm going to say by saying that I'm in awe of and and highly value American uh, ability to solve problems. On the other hand, we are not good at all uh, of facing something that has no immediate solution. Uh, and that's probably because we've become accustomed to solving problems. And, and the pandemic was a great one, but in our in our private lives, we all have some of those, the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one to an illness, um, 
our kids are not doing what we wanted them to do and so on. Uh, and so I think we need as Americans to take another look at what, how will we cope when we can't have our way? Uh, we need to temper our need for mastery. In the case of some people who have no power, they need to increase their, their ability to master the situation. So there's an uneven uh, capability uh, privilege, an uneven privilege, and some of us who have a lot of privilege need to give some up. To, and some people who ha don't have enough need to develop more. By the way, the American Indians would be an exception to what I just described because they believe in harmony with nature as well and not so much in mastering it, which the white population, the Euro-American population, from the, from the get-go when settling America, believed in conquering nature. You're a woman who is in a field that is male-dominated, and of course everyone is highly educated, so everyone feels brilliant. You know, they, they've earned the right to feel brilliant, all of you doctors. But as you stated, you know, folks in your field don't necessarily like to be told that whatever concepts that they may have thought were one way is actually not that way at all. It's actually a little bit more complex, such as the myth of closure. Do you get any pushback that is related to the fact that you're a woman? who is, you know, shining a light on these things and essentially telling men you, you don't necessarily know as much as you thought you did because take a look at this. Do you get any pushback for being a woman who is delivering this message? Uh, not today, but I did when I was a housewife in the late 1960s with small children who wanted to go back to school. Uh, and yes, I did feel um, that that I was breaking rules of what a woman should do, what a married woman should do back then. Where I lived, fortunately, my parents were great supporters, so it, it eased that for me. But I knew I was breaking the rules, and yet I, I had more privilege than average, even so, and I got through it. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 
That's joinmidi.com. Um, it caused a divorce, but the divorce might have happened anyhow. In a sense, I plowed on. I, I kept going forward. There was great discrimination against women professors also uh, when I came to the university. Uh, but then shortly after that, there were lawsuits. Um, there was one lawsuit here uh, from a professor, a woman professor, um, who got a letter saying she wouldn't get tenure because she was a woman. <laughs> so that was a great lawsuit here back then. And then sexual harassment codes came in and things got better. And also, um, as time went on, I felt a lot stronger. And if, if, um, if people were using their, their power over me in, in a way that was harmful to me, uh, I would fight back, talk back, or uh, just I, I was just stronger by then. You know, an interesting thing has played out before our eyes recently, Dr. Pauline, on the television show The View, Whoopi Goldberg had made a comment that the Holocaust was not about race. And essentially, it was just two different groups of white people having conflict with each other, but it wasn't about race. And there was a significant backlash. Uh, ultimately, Whoopi was suspended for a period of time. She, she recently was brought back, but she was suspended for a period of time for making those comments because... The backlash was so significant. And within that backlash, there was this this movement to cancel Whoopi Goldberg. And, and you know, it, it really has become a prevalent thing, this whole notion of what's known as cancel culture. What is your take on cancel culture from just from a general standpoint and even using this this instance from the view as an example of cancel culture because from my perspective and I know that you you touch upon this a little bit it's related to the the myth of closure oh thank you for that question I heard about that and it reminds me that we're in a period of disagreement right now about even something um, as the definition of race um, actually I see it as good that the discussion has become national on a popular TV show um, and I, I'm glad it's on the table because many people misunderstand things like that and we need to discuss them together uh, get ideas together come up with some answers so that we move forward not toward closure which cancel culture is so is ghosting, which I think is a cruel and cowardly way to end a relationship. And, and today, the family splits, family alienation is going way up, where all of a sudden somebody says, I don't want to be part of this family anymore. I'll never talk to you again. All of those are examples of closure, absolute thinking. They are not holding two ideas in their mind at the same time which you could do. I don't like my father, but I will still go home periodically, or I will still meet them in, in a, a public place periodically. Absolute closure takes no mental maturity or psychological maturity. It takes maturity to live with 
discussion to live with different different ideas. That's the tolerance for ambiguity is live, live, living with uh, diverse others and embracing change, doing something different, risking challenge, risking change. We all need to increase our tolerance for ambiguity now. And the things that are definitely not that are cancel culture, ghosting, family alienation. Keep the door open for the conversation. Great advice, Dr. Pauline. Listen, for anyone listening right now, if they're interested in getting a copy of The Myth of Closure and even, you know, checking you out on social media or what have you, plug away. What's the best way that anyone listening can keep up with Dr. Pauline? Uh, I don't do social media, so the people who do can help me by promoting the book. Uh, You can get it, of course, at your favorite bookstore or Amazon.com or from the publisher W.W. Norton in New York City. Um, It's an easy read. Yes, I am an academic, but at 87, I've stopped writing academically, and I write as if I'm talking to you. So um, don't be afraid uh, of it being... Uh, an academic book. Uh, It is for both uh, professionals and for ordinary people. Um, And um, I hope you read it. I hope you enjoy it. But most of all, I hope you find it useful. Thank you. Such a wonderful conversation there with Dr. Pauline. And, you know, again, this, this whole notion of closure and ambiguous loss, the way that we go through life, especially here in the United States, assuming that there's there's a way that we can put a, a, a perfect, neat bow on life. You know, if we could just do this one thing, then that will be it. That will that will settle that. And it's just it's unrealistic. And I think that it puts a lot of pressure on all of us. You know, it's just not a thing. It's very rarely in life are things going to have a perfect ending. Because very rarely in life do things have a perfect beginning. And I love the, the, the notion of ambiguous loss where it's, you know, you, you learn to live with it. That doesn't mean that you don't grieve. doesn't mean you don't mourn, but you learn to live with it. So it's, it's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. That was a, a fun conversation there. Definitely one I was looking forward to uh, and looking forward to sharing with you. And towards the end you know we i brought up the the whole thing with the view and whoopi goldberg and and making the statement that uh, the holocaust was not about race and i want to keep that conversation going because we've had some great folks on the show through the years and and certainly the notion of going to people who actually know and who actually are experiencing things that's the whole concept of this show. It's not about me sitting here acting like I have all the answers or any answers, so to speak. I have perspective, but it's important for me to reach out to people who actually are living it and who actually have certain experiences that they can share with me and with you. And, and my job is to ask them questions in order to clarify, simplify, challenge concepts right again using my critical thinking skills so as it relates to this whole the view and Whoopi Goldberg and the Holocaust not being about race that whole stuff there uh, 
I was having discussion online, just like a lot of other people were. And someone was, was gracious enough to offer to lend their time to come on the show and have a real good discussion. I mean, and, you know, this guy is a podcast host and a law student, you know, finishing up law school, but he's also Jewish. So you're going to hear some good stuff here that may surprise you in terms of this type of discussion, which is an ongoing discussion. Because what I've found is you can talk to five different people and you may actually get five different answers about the same thing. But this is why I'm very careful not to talk as if I know everything, because I certainly don't, number one. And number two, this is why I think it's important to continue to have the discussion, continue to have the conversation. Don't run from it. Lean into it. So check out this conversation right now and then on the back end i'm going to have some closing words duke thanks for having me great to talk to you my name is brian escow um, i'm a law student i'm in my last year i'm 32 years old uh, i work full-time as a construction superintendent and i'm here to tell you the truth i host my podcast it's called searching for political identity i started that back in may but i launched it uh, in the middle of law school because I've always been passionate about politics. Um, and when I say that, I really just mean I've always been interested in politics. I've not really been active at all, always voted, all that kind of thing. But um, I've always liked politics and I just got a little sick and tired not expressing myself. And I do think it was one of those things, like during the pandemic, so many people have reevaluated their lives and asked themselves if they're doing the things they wanna do. And one thing led to another, and suddenly I have a podcast. So I grew up in a liberal household. My father is a very passionate liberal, um, and I guess today that means left-leaning. Um, and I, But the co- community I grew up in was a pretty conservative suburb. So I feel like that resulted in me having a, an appreciation for both sides of the political debate. And I've just always enjoyed talking to people about politics and having arguments and discussions and hopefully learning something. Well, Brian, thank you very much for joining cool. us here on Tell Us the Truth. I, I want to make something clear here. Brian, you're Jewish. Is that correct? Yes, sir. That is correct. A reformed Jew, as I like to say. So, so what does that mean? What does it mean to be a reformed Jew? Because I, you know, we've heard this term mentioned on the show from previous guests. And, you know, I think of Sarah Poulton, who is a, a mutual connection of ours and what have you here. What is a reformed Jew from your perspective? So in my mind, there are three levels of being Jewish, reform, conservative, and orthodox. Um, reform being the most relaxed, um, and then conservative being the next level up and then orthodox being what you imagine um, as like the ultimate, like super traditionally Jewish um, person from Israel. Um, I have cousins who are a little bit more conservative. So I grew up knowing that world a bit. I was bar mitzvah. I went to Hebrew school. Um, and so being reformed means that you were bar mitzvahed, you, you, you went to Hebrew school, you, you kind of understand the religion, but you're just not dogmatic. You're more spiritual. You're more kind of 21st century Jewish. 
And so being reformed very much to me means being open-minded, not being a fundamentalist for sure, not being a fundamentalist. Um, so it's interesting. You can be, for example, a strong supporter of Israel. Um, and I'm not even saying that I am, I am, but I'm just making a point. You could be a strong supporter of Israel, but also be a reformed Jew. It's so the relationship to Judaism and Israel, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. That is interesting. And you know, it's something that I think a lot of people are, are, they either go one of two ways. They have a conversation or they have relationships with friends and, and people within their social circles who are Jewish and assume that because of what their friends have told them and their perspective and what it means for them to be Jewish and their experience, that means that that's the Jewish experience, period. So you have people who will go out to the world and then start saying all this stuff, not realizing that just as you broke down, there's there's different uh, variations of the ideology and what have you and, and what comes with that. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 very interesting to, to hear you speak from your perspective and how it is um, for you and, and tying that into the fact of where you grew up, but also your household. And how even though you grew up in a conservative area, you, you have a very liberal household that you grew up in as well. So you kind of were exposed to various points of um, political ideology, which also bleeds into religion and, and the overarching point of identity. So it doesn't surprise yeah. me that you got a podcast about identity. huh? Exactly. That's it. And you grow up. I was thinking about this last night. Um for me, part of growing up was first realizing at a certain age, hey, my grandparents aren't right about everything as much as I love them and as great as they are. I'm not right about everything. And then one day you realize your parents aren't right about everything. And so you grow up and you have to sift through the information and you have to decide what you believe in. And in doing that, you know, I've said to myself, wow, you know, was my dad right about these issues economically in, in U.S. politics um, or is the community right? It's so pick an issue and I've, I, I've got questions about it. And yeah, the, the podcast really is a genuine search for political identity. I, I couldn't name it anything else because, you know, I've always voted Democrat. I voted twice for Obama, Hillary and then Biden. Um, and. I've always felt that I would just vote for the person that is best for the job, is uh, that I respect the most. But do I really have a great understanding of the policies that each quote side really wants to do? And, you know, am I really doing anything else but voting for the best person? Um, and, and it just goes back to these conversations I had with friends back in high school and college. Um, intense but respectful, usually conversations about politics. And I, I love pol- political philosophy. Um, it's just interesting. And uh, there are so many issues to talk about today. Um, critical race theory comes to mind. I mean, and I'm in my last year of law school and getting tremendous um, civil rights education in my last year from an amazing, amazing professor. 
And it's like in the last year of law school, they've taught you how to think in the box. You go through and, okay, here's the box. Here are the rules. This is how you approach a legal problem, whatever. And then you get this professor and he takes a hammer to that and he smashes it. He says, here's critical race theory and here's how you think outside the box. So um, it really just feeds into the identity question and how should we be thinking about ourselves? I, you don't want to be colorblind. To be colorblind, is, like, that's ridiculous. But at the same time, do we really want to play into our skin color identities for the purpose of public policy? It's it's all very, very interesting. Part of the issue is that we, we label the word politics as a catch-all, right? Politics encompasses everything. And even when you think what you're discussing or what you're doing, what your beliefs are, are not political, one way or another, it does get back to that. Because at the end of the day, your beliefs have a bearing on who you're going to vote for. And they need to be as close to your beliefs as they can be in order for you to trust them, in order for you to feel that they're going to to do what's best for you in the long run and, and, and whomever you care about. So, yeah, everything in life is political and identity is wrapped up into all of that, which is the truth here. I, I want to get specific about something because, you know, recently we, we saw with the television show The View, Whoopi Goldberg. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This is, this is a comedian. This is a um, political commentator. This is an actress. Uh, you know, Whoopi Goldberg is, is a person who has been around for a while and established herself as someone whose opinion people seek out. Whether they agree or disagree, she's, she's in a position where her opinion matters enough for people to check in on a, on a day-to-day basis uh, to hear what she has to say about things. You know, that's been her career for the most mm-hmm. part. Yeah. Whoopi, during an episode of The View, stated that the Holocaust was not about race. And there was a tremendous backlash because of her saying that. In fact, ABC, you know, The View, they had to suspend Whoopi. And, and a lot of people have taken issue with what she's had to say. So I want to get your perspective. And, and, and I want to be clear about something. I'm not asking Brian to speak on behalf of all Jewish people because that's ridiculous. Only the reformed Jews. Well, (laughs) Well, I I am asking you to speak on behalf of, of yourself and your perspective on all of this, because here's my issue. 
And well, I got a couple of them. First and foremost, here on Tell Us the Truth, this is a place where open and honest dialogue happens. It literally tell us the truth. What that means and how we get there a lot of times is I'm going to ask questions that are pretty ignorant because I, I legitimately don't know. And I'm not experienced enough to know, which is why I have to get folks like yourself on to help educate me. Right. Uh, so hopefully whoever's listening, they can have that experience as well, because for the most part, especially in, in our society today, people can't have these open and honest dialogues with each other because there's this fear that you're going to say something the wrong way or it's going to be received the wrong way or you really just said something that was just completely unacceptable. And now you've put yourself in a position where whomever you're trying to interact with has just shut you out and shut you down because you went too far. You know, but what happens is what's the right answer, though? You know, when we when we close the conversation, we're missing the actual right answer. How do people get on the right side of history unless we finish the conversation? So I'm going to ask you directly, what is your take on what Whoopi Goldberg said in terms of saying that the Holocaust was not about, quote unquote, race? Well, my first reaction when I heard the story was that she had already apologized. So the first exposure I had to the story was her apology. And I tweeted about it and I said, wow, what a great apology. That's how you do it. That was it for me. You know, it wasn't a huge thing. It was, I was like impressed with her apology and she had not been suspended yet. Now as to the substance of her comment, you know, why would she say that? And I believe she was also said, basically it was a dispute between two groups of white people. That was kind of what she was saying, the Holocaust. I don't know why she would have said that. Most people are familiar with the idea that Hitler wanted to cleanse the human race of Jews. I, th I don't think that's disputed. Uh, at a certain point, Hitler you know, decided that the world would be better, the human bloodline would be better without Jew Jewish blood, so to speak. And uh, that's kind of it. So was it two groups of white people <clears throat> or was it, is it, was it a thing about race? Well, race is, a, as I've been told in law school, and I, and I suppose I agree with the statement, race is a, race is a plastic concept. It kind of changes, you know, what does it really mean? And then Jew is complicated because it, it really kind of is an ethnicity, but it's also kind of a religion. So it, it is complicated. You know, I don't know why she said that. I can just say that, you know, did it really bother me? Did it bother me so much that she said it wasn't about race? It didn't really bother me that much. I mean, I guess the question is, does it bother me that Whoopi Goldberg said that Jewish people are basically white? You know, I don't have a particularly strong reaction to it. Is it ignorant on her part? I don't know. I guess it depends on what you think race means. So to answer your question, I guess that's it. It, it didn't keep me up at night. And do I agree with her being suspended? <sighs> I don't I don't know if I do, man. <laughs> you know, it's all a question of what is appropriate punishment in the 21st century? What is too correct? What is politically correct? Where's the line? I can't even tell you if I think it was offensive. I don't think she meant to be offensive. 
It was just ignorant, I guess. You either think it was ignorant or you don't. And she apologized. So I was fine with it. <laughs> so, so here's what's interesting about what you're saying, Brian. And let me speak on a personal level here. And I appreciate your, your perspective. Again, you're speaking on, on your perspective. You're not speaking on behalf of anybody else. This is, this is Brian's take, which is, which is a strong take here. I had uh, someone on the show who, you know, we had a conversation about um, Holocaust Remembrance Day and, and the significance of that. And through the conversation, we talked about a lot of things that are that are misunderstood or, or just frankly ignorant. You know, there's no two ways about it. Um, and it was interesting because and I'm talking about Dr. Deborah Dash Moore, who you know, she's a professor of, of history of Judaic, Judaic studies at the University of Michigan. She also is the editor of the Posen Library. So this isn't some lightweight here. This is somebody who, you know, her life's work is, is about educating people on Jewish history, Holocaust remembrance, the whole nine yards there as it, as it relates to the culture, right? And I said mm-hmm. something about Jewish people as a race, and she corrected me. She said, "What did she say?" You know, I, I take issue with that. I take issue with you referring to us as a race because that would imply that biologically there's some type of uh, similarity across the board there, and that's just not the case. Um, you know, the Jewish people come in all different shapes and sizes, and in biology and what have you, they're all over the world. Because uh, I, I brought up even you know Jewish people in Africa different parts of Africa would have Ethiopia, for example. Um, and she pointed out that, no, it's not a race and, and, and went into an explanation. But here's my, here's my greater point that I'm trying to make here. I could have stopped there and said, well, here is this major academic, world-renowned, who just corrected me on this thing. And thank you for that. So now I'm on the right side of history. Now I understand. You know, it's 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 not proper to refer mm-hmm. to Jewish people as a race. Well, now Whoopi Goldberg gets suspended from her job for literally less That's than a week later, Brian, for referring to Jewish wow. people as a race. Now, and as you stated, and you're right, she said a few other things too. This was just a, a, a the Holocaust was just uh, groups of white people. Or she said a that it was other, that they were was just completely that they weird. weren't. A, was it? She she said that it what that the Holocaust was not about race, right? Yes, or, that's what that's what Whoopi Goldberg. Right. That's what she said. It's not about race uh, because it was two groups of white people having you know conflict with each other. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. So but let me that just make sure I understand this. This yeah, let me just make sure I understand this interaction you had a week prior to that. You were you were having this discussion with this. Uh, <laughs> I'll say it. Professional Jew. I'm kidding. And um, she educated okay. <laughs> you and said, I'm joking. And she said, um, Jewish people are, are not a race. And you said, OK, I stand corrected. Yes. And then a week later, yes. Whoopi Goldberg says, Jewish people are not a race. Right. Yes. OK. So basically, Whoopi Goldberg, in your mind, is saying the same thing that this professor corrected you. I'm not and saying that she's saying we'll the be, same thing, but I'm saying but it, that but she's saying kind of something same, very same similar. Similar. I'm talking Whoopi now, uh, just as a black American woman. She felt very comfortable saying what she was saying, which I'm sure so that's really had to interesting. Have come from. Yeah. So, so this is my point, Brian. 
That's good. Yeah. That instance, the first thing I said to myself once that happened, I said, well, guess what? I'm never going to talk about this personally because <laughs> what kind of fool would I be going out in public saying, oh, wait, hold on a second. You know, Jews are not a race. OK, let's make sure we get this right. And yada, yada, yada. I, I'm going to I'm going to cancel myself saying that out in public <laughs> because look at what just happened to Whoopi Goldberg. Right. Yeah. No, that's a good that's a really good observation. And, you know, and and what did I say? I mean, <laughs> It's complicated. That's what I said, right? I mean, this question comes up all the time. Are Jews a race? Are they, in, you know, what is race? First of all, you have to, what is race? You have to, so to me, the question is like, are Jews an ethnic group or are they a religion? And I think the answer is both. Both. Um, <laughs> That's right? it, both. So both. you just have to think critically, I think. And like, look, I'm not even an expert in my own history. I know my ancestry.com or 23andMe, whatever it was, says I'm from, you know, a mix of Eastern European countries. Uh, that's where that's where my DNA is from, I guess. Uh, I, I, I happen to be Jewish. Somehow my family became Jews. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm an ethnic Jew. I don't know what I am. I consider myself an American citizen. You know, this is really interesting, Duke. So I'm 32. And yeah, no wonder I have a podcast called Searching for Political Identity. It's This is great stuff. When I, I'm 32. When I was 21, I was lucky enough, most American Jews are, <laughs> to, I signed up for what they call birthright, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It's a free trip to Israel. You heard of this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And my mom, my mom's friend, you know, worked on one of the boards or whatever. And so I was like, she shooed me in like, so it was awesome. I was like, yeah, Kathy hooked me up and now I'm going to birthright. I had an amazing time. It was awesome. 40 kids. Um, I was a straight, you know, one, I was by myself with a group of 40 kids for two weeks. We had about 20 Israeli guards with us soldiers our age you know they had the machine guns all that very cool to see that interesting intense all that and i was it was it was the last one of the last days of the trip we're having this beautiful dinner just the culmination of all of it and i'm on the phone with my dear grandma my amazing grandma who's back in new jersey and we're talking and i'm telling her how great it is and she says brian do you feel like you're home? <laughs> and I said, no, I feel like I'm in Israel. You know what I mean? Like I'm from New Jersey. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, no, I didn't feel like I was home, man. I, I, and I don't know if my perspective will be different if I go back to Israel and it might, but it's a whole thing of like, and then you bring up the whole dual, uh, look, Israel's a Jewish state. And, but it isn't right. But it's like, it's all very, very weird and complicated. Is it a theocracy or not? It's, it, and you can tie in, this is what I've been thinking about recently. And without going on too far of a di discretion, um, a diatribe or, or digression, excuse me, in these civil rights classes that I'm learning, 
you learn critical race theory, which is basically just the idea that, hey, in, in, in contemporary American society, it's still built around white identity. There's such a thing as white identity. All our institutions are built around it. And so that explains the systemic racism that exists today still. And so the simple answer is to socially transform the institutions. And so, you know, however you have to dismantle that white power structure, that subtle, implicit white power structure, um, that's the move. That's critical race theory. There is a new theory, civil rights theory, that I'm being exposed to now called limited separation. And I'm just <clears throat> getting my feet wet into this. Uh, but it's just the idea that it's not a return to segregation, but it's the idea that the best thing to do to solve the issues facing the black community in America is to foster predominantly, but not exclusively black institutions like uh, HBCUs, stuff like that. Um, it's basically the idea that, you know, to the extent that there are problems that you want to say there are problems facing the African-American community, the, the solution is not to transform society as a whole. It's not to, you know, try to do affirmative action or whatever. It's, it's to make sure that there are predominantly black institutions because that is what's going to saw, you know, focus on black identity, basically, rather than critical race theory, which is focused on social transformation. Um, and so limited separation, not segregation, but it reminds me of like creating Israel. And I think to myself, man, just thinking out loud here, I go, is this basically like planting the seeds of, does there need to be the creation of like a black America or like in Israel, like Jews got, got together at a certain point and says, you know, we need our own place and I am not pushing for this, but I'm being told about uh, this theory called limited separation. And, um, it's, um, it's, I think it's fair to say it's a, it's a black, I don't want to say it's a black idea, but it's a, it's a, an idea generated by black scholars, black legal scholars, um, and Derek Bell, actually the creator of critical race theory, so I'm told by my professor, towards his death, um, gravitated away towards critical race theory and towards limited separation. Not sure if he's the grandfather of limited separation. I know he's the grandfather, uh, the creator of critical race theory, Derek Bell. But apparently towards the end of his life, he, he, he was drifting towards limited separation. Um, and so it just reminds me of Israel. And I just wonder what the future of these, and they're called post-civil rights theories, um, critical race theory and uh, limited separation. Those are what Professor calls outside-the-box post-civil rights theories. Wow. You, you just you opened up a whole new can of worms there, and, and that's definitely mm – -hmm. um, I'm going to have to talk to you offline about your professor. Maybe I can get him on the show to, to unpack oh, some of that stuff uh, yeah. even more because that's, yeah. that's very, very interesting. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this, Brian. For someone like myself, right? You and I are friends. I'm a black guy. I'm a guy who, because I'm a black man in America, I know what it feels like to be marginalized. I know what it feels like to be targeted. I know what it feels like to be hated for things that have nothing to do with, like I, it's, it's, I have no control over my race and I have no control over how other people 
perceive my race, so to speak, right? And whatever whatever issues they have as it relates to that. Um, so I understand what it means to be marginalized over something that you have no control over. Do you have any advice for me in terms of this whole stuff with Whoopi Goldberg and the and the overarching issue in general? What do I say? Do I say anything at all as it relates to... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Jewish people being a race, not being a race, et cetera. Do I just stay out of it? Is that is that something that's just not for me to comment on and, and then leave it to Jewish people to have that conversation and I just pay attention? Absolutely not. Um, I You should speak on it because it would be hypocritical for me to say anything else because look at the things I tweet about, talk about. Um, I'm talking about black issues, quote, you know, you might say issues that face quote black Americans and I'm not black. So I, I absolutely think you should speak on, uh, Jewish issues, whatever. Um, so do it and be true to yourself and don't be afraid. Um, and we should all be as educated as we can. Now I, I have the privilege of like getting a great education in this stuff as we speak. So I have a nice net to fall back on. I'm, I may be putting my foot in my mouth here and there, but at the end of the day, I'm getting great information straight from school and I'm just feeding it online. Um, so yeah, I would say just do your research. Now it's a great question. You don't want to get canceled. Now the whoopee thing, you know, <sighs> wow. I guess we should all be careful, but I, I wouldn't worry about it. I, I think you have to just speak your truth. Very interesting take. Very interesting take. And and listen, I don't disagree. Um, but with speaking your truth or with speaking the truth that you believe is the truth, there may be consequences as Whoopi Goldberg is finding out. I mean, she has just been turned into this this person who has said this awful thing about Jewish people and she deserves to be punished for for saying it. And listen, I don't know enough to say that that's true or that's false, that she should be punished for what she said. But what I do know is this is what happens when you believe that people need to be canceled or punished for having open dialogue in forums that are supposed to be built for open dialogue. You know what I mean? A a television show like The View I always assumed was one of the few places where people from different perspectives can say just about anything. And there'll be someone on that panel when, when something is incorrect, there'll be someone on that panel who can challenge, correct, educate, and then everyone is better off moving forward. But in, in, in the audience who witnesses this type of open and honest dialogue walks away with something. Well, now we find out, and it's not just this whoopee thing. It was happening before then. Whomever the the conservative uh, panelist on The View is, 
there have been times when they've been suspended. I, I, I think of uh, Sarah, whatever her name was. I think her name was Sarah. Um, how many times did she get suspended for saying something that was so, you know, right wing and, and misguided and what have you about this, that and the other thing? And she'd get in trouble for doing that. And it's like, well, wait a second. I get it. I get it that this person said something that was offensive. But isn't this the place where you're supposed to be able to say something offensive and be corrected? Because that's the, that's the key part of it there. If someone is on that panel who is educated enough, knowledgeable enough, has enough experience to speak on the topics that you choose to speak about, then you don't have to worry about somebody ignorant saying something because they're there to correct the record. So right. if we can't have that on a show like The View, then that tells me we've gone too far in a certain direction overall. Overall. I don't care if you're yeah. black. I don't care if you're white. I don't care if you're Republican. I don't care if you're Democrat. We've gone too far to the point where we can't have open and honest dialogue, educate one another, and then move forward together. That is my issue that I see with all of this stuff. What's your take on that? Yeah, br brilliant. Um, I definitely want to respond to that. And I'll just say that I agree with you completely. That's why I launched my show. It seems like that's why you have this show um, to create these spaces. Okay, this is like a natural reaction to that movement in society towards too, whether you want to talk, call it too much political correctness or fear of um, open conversation, f fear of being wrong. Um, I agree with you. And it's like a fine line between you don't want to just be a Ben Shapiro or a Jordan Peterson or, a, you know, uh, one of these macho, hey, society's, you know, too PC just for no reason. There are things that are as as you as you move on in time, you say, OK, it's wrong to say that we shouldn't say that anymore. Um, but but you can go too far. And uh, I think we have gone too far. And whether you, I don't know if gender neutral bathrooms is, you know, it's it, in so many ways, 3D society's m changing. And I, I bring three uh, gender neutral bathrooms up only to say, like, whether it's what is acceptable to say on a talk show, what is an acceptable to have on a sign on a bathroom door, things are in flux. And it's always a question of what do you think is appropriate? And if you're asking me about conversations on The View, I, I agree that it's a shame that something a pro, like an apology can't be made and a learning moment can't be had. Um, a suspension for being ignorant, for being wrong? I don't agree with that. I agree with you. Um, and so, yes, that's why we started our shows, I believe. And, and yes, society has gone too far with uh, with political correctness. I'm not afraid to be wrong. Um, I don't want to be wrong. I don't like to be wrong. It's embarrassing. It's, but I'm not afraid to speak my mind. And I think we're we're similar in that way. It's a shame. It's a shame. You don't want to be now. You know, private companies. This is like the basic legal analysis. Private companies can censor they can do whatever they want you you don't have the freedom to speak freely on the view technically i don't think um if it was the government if you work for, if they work for the government 
yeah, the government can't uh, restrict their freedom of speech, but a private entity can. The First Amendment doesn't apply to a private entity. People, a lot of people think it should, but a lot of people don't think it should. But so the company has the power to suspend Whoopi. It's just a question of like, is that the culture we want? And it's tough, man. I'm sure it's tough to 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 be operating a talk show in today's world. But I, I think it proves your point of we've moved too far in, in some direction. And so I think we should keep some of the good things that are coming out of this social movement. Um, more open mind. I'm very pro LGBTQ plus rights. I'm pro choice. Um, I'm one of those people. It's not because I like, love the idea of abortion. I just, I'm pro choice. I believe people should be able to live the way they want to live, especially if they're born that way. So, and they should have equal rights. So how far, but at the same time, I don't think we should ban someone or cancel someone if they say, you know what? Now, if someone on the view were to say, I think gay people are, it's a choice. Okay, it's a, that's a pretty good example. What do I think would be appropriate there? Because I think it's pretty obvious that it's not a choice. They're just people, okay, with characteristics. And so if someone were to say that, would it be appropriate to suspend mm -hmm. them? <laughs> Probably, right? Probably. That's offensive. It's wrong. It's ignorant. It perpetuates a stereotype and hate. Right. So, but this whoopee thing, which is the discussion of our, uh, the point of our discussion, Duke. Yeah. My reaction, as I told you in the beginning, Oh, nice apology. Cool. Done. It's really that simple. That's, that was my take on it. I'm telling you, man, this is, this is a, a moving target. In my opinion, this is something that we'll all continue to have discussion about. Um, and I don't know if we're ever going to get to a, a definitive answer outside of, look, just be true to yourself and, and stay educated, you know, but don't allow yourself to believe that you're an expert on someone else's experience. And I guess for me personally, I, that's where I draw the line. It's not for me to speak definitively on women's rights uh, as it pertains to what women go through and what have you. Now, I can talk about what I think I know. I can talk about what I believe, but it's it's important. And I think this is where Whoopi made the biggest mistake. She didn't preface her comment by saying, from what I understand or in my opinion, she just went right for it definitively as if what she was saying is a stone cold fact. And that's the end of it. And I think that at the very least, we all need to be a little bit more careful in that regard. And that's part of the reason why I, I've set up anything that you said is in terms of the questions that I'm asking you. I'm making it clear. You're speaking on behalf of yourself. I'm not going to put the whole Jewish population reformed or otherwise on your back where you have to be the spokesperson for everyone because that's unreasonable. You know, when people talk about the quote unquote black community, it irritates me. What the heck right. is the black community? Black people live everywhere. And right. in terms of the issues facing black people, especially here in America, 
it's not all the same. It's similar, but very different. And yep. it doesn't, you don't have to look too hard or look too far to understand what I mean by that. So this whole black community stuff, I think people use that as a catch-all to try to pigeonhole us and make it seem as if we're a monolith, when in reality, we're so diverse, it's scary. Last year, I took a class called Jurisprudence, and that's when I first got a real introduction to critical race theory with uh, prof- this professor. Now I'm in a, a class called Discrimination, Law, and Diversity with him. Last semester, when I first got introduced to CRT, I, I basically am the Ted Cruz of the class. I walked in there and I, it's with the mindset of, of course, black people. I, I, I'm allergic to the idea of calling anything a black community even, because what does that even mean? I, I'm an individual. I think I'm an individualist. I just make the assumption that people are people. CRT definitely, and I'm not trying to say anything negative about it. It, it does ask you not to consider black people as a monolith. No, no, no. But it does ask you to basically look at the opinion polls and say, okay, a majority of, the black, of black people think this in America, so this is the black view. I'm going to be even more – I'm going I'm to get right to it. My professor, who's amazing, has said that Clarence Thomas has a white mind. And that really bothered me. Um, so it's it's tough to swallow, um, but you have to just say, hey, I am not the expert in this at all. Uh, be humble. And maybe this goes to how you should approach learning about like Jewish stuff. I, I just go into class and I'm listening. Sometimes I'm a little combative. I'm a little... Sh- you know, my emotions get the best of me, but I try to listen, of course. And but but it is very um, controversial to be taught that not that black people are a monolith, but that there is such a thing as black identity and there is such a thing as white identity. And I'm just allergic to that notion. But <laughs> it's very so it's very tricky. I just wanted to say that. Well, it comes back to the same point, and I'm glad that you brought that up because, again, if I don't want to be pigeonholed into being the spokesperson for the quote-unquote black community, dun-dun-dun, then how the hell am I going to expect you to speak on behalf of all Jews? doesn't make any sense. How, am I, how, how the hell am I going to expect any woman that, that's ever been on the show to speak on behalf of all women? Now, that doesn't mean that they can't share their personal experience and they can't point out the similarities that other women face and that women statistically face or for you that Jews statistically face or for me that black people statistically face. But we all got to keep in mind, I'm a guy in Boston, you know, born and raised, still live in the greater Boston area. My experience is, is very different than my cousins who live in Mississippi and their Mm. experience is very different than my cousins who live in Jamaica who may come over here and may, you know, set up a life and live. So that's important. And I think that that's why we have to be careful and make sure that we're not speaking on behalf and even being careful not to be too definitive about what we're speaking of as if we know for sure that's it. You know what I mean? I'm not going to give a that's it 
on the Jewish experience or whether or not Jews are a race or anything like that, because damn it, every time I talk to, to anyone who's Jewish, I'm getting a slightly different answer on this stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> if you don't know, how the hell am I supposed to know? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's just it. I mean, that is such a great point. And, and I'm so glad you invited me on this show because it's, we're talking about truth. Tell us the truth. Well, and it gets to alternative facts in the age of Trump. What is the truth? Is there such thing as a truth? Well, probably, but you don't want to be the person who thinks they know it all. <laughs> you want to just, you don't want to be that guy. You hit it right on the head. Listen, Brian, I, I know you and I could sit here for days talking because, uh, you know, this is, this is a fun back and forth that we're having here. Um, definitely on the same side of, of just being open and honest about great discussion, which I love. Why don't you let everybody know the best way that they can check out your podcast and also check you out on social media? Plug away, man. Sure. Thanks so much. So my podcast is called Searching for Political Identity. It's available wherever you get podcasts. And my Twitter handle is at Brian Escow. That's B-R-I-A-N-E-S-K-O-W. It's that simple. Um, I'd love to have you as a listener. I appreciate that. And definitely, I'm, I'm, as we speak, I'm heading over to uh, where I listen to my podcast, which, you know, iHeartRadio app, definitely, and hitting the su subscribe button. So I never miss an episode of your show either. Listen, before I let you go, Brian, I got to ask one last question. And this is an important one because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a food guy. You know, I, I truly believe that one of the best ways that people can build relationships is around something as simple as food because we all got to eat, right? So I want to know. I know you're a reformed Jew, so this would be interesting here, but I want to know. Kugel, are you a Kugel guy? Because I'm a Kugel guy, okay? I like, I like the dessert Kugel with the cinnamon sugar and the raisins and what have you. I am a Kugel guy. Are you a Kugel guy? No. I had to Google. I, I don't, don't know even know what Kugel friends, is. Man. I had to go I, I just had to Google it. I think we just ruined our, we just killed our relationship in the crib. Haroset? My grandma used to make a mean haroset, which is like apple, diced apples, cinnamon, honey. But Kugel? No. I'm really reformed. You might be more Jewish than me. Fun conversation there with Brian Escal. Definitely uh, enlightening. And again, it, it comes back to Everyone has their own perspective. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.